Hello, everyone, and welcome back for another week of Growing With My Fellow Growers. I'm your host, Jack Greenstock, joined, as always, by an amazing panel. I'm going to kick it over first to Spartan Grown. Thanks, Jack. I'm Spartan Grown. You can find me on Instagram at Spartan Grown, all one word, no spaces. Or you can shoot me an email at spartangrown at gmail.com for all of your growing questions. Also, if you have lighting questions, I know I'm working for Grandmaster LEDs. So if you have any lighting issues, you can shoot me an email at russ at gmlarmy.com. All right. New emails up and running. And uh, we'll hear a little bit about that, I'm sure, in a little bit. But uh, next up, we got Dr. MJ. Hey, guys. I'm Dr. MJ Coco from CocoForCannabis.com. Um, yeah, happy to field your lighting questions. And I'm excited to talk about the... Uh, the topic today, sort of getting into how to set up a grow. So that's gonna be a lot of fun. Definitely. And uh, congrats to Ohio there with being the most recent state to legalize. And next up, we've got Matthew Gates. Hey, everyone. I was recently in Ohio, actually, or, or not in Ohio, working with somebody in Ohio. Wow, what a difference that would be. But uh, yeah, I'm excited to talk about that as always, and maybe about how home growers have a little bit of an edge on commercial growers. We probably already knew that. You can check also me out on some content, zenthanol.com for professional inquiries, YouTube, Zenthanol as well. And uh, remember, I'm working on a book. So if you're curious about some IPM information, uh, check that out in uh, maybe the middle of next year. I think it'll be out uh, when I'm done with everything. But yeah, uh, thanks, everyone. Always good to tell people early and often when you're putting out a book so that uh, they know that it's available when it's available and so they can get uh, but that being said, we've got Noah the Groa here with us as well this evening. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Uh, yeah, I'm Noah the Groa. You can find me there on Instagram. And uh, most weeks here with you guys. And uh, happy to get into it. Um, I'll go in my room when, when we get downtime or something just for a couple of seconds and show off what I got going on. And uh, let's get into it. Always a good example. And uh, yeah, kind of I touched on it in the introductions, but Ohio being the most recent state to legalize, I've looked a little bit into their laws and um, somebody mentioned that the, I think it was Matthew said, commercial growers are going to have it maybe a little bit more difficult or home growers have just a little bit of an advantage. And I'm not sure if that's just logistically or if there's also legal stuff on top of that. But from a logistics standpoint, there is a lot of advantages to, I think, having a smaller, more manageable grow and uh, setting it up home grow style, being able to give that love and attention to each plant. So we do benefit on that front as well as potentially some legal fronts, like maybe potentially not having to uh, have our stuff tested for CFU count um, and worrying about like irradiating our product um, and potentially ruining some of that freshness that you might get as a uh, home grower. Um, so those are a few considerations, but there's many, many more. And uh, shout out to one of our listeners who suggested doing this type of episode because it's been about two years since we did like a back to basics or how to set up uh, like grow tents versus grow rooms and some of those type of really core how to get started growing. And uh, I guess we'll just get right into it and I'll pass it to uh, Spartan Grown. If like, you know, heaven forbid anything happened, like if our house burned down and we had to start from square one in a new place today, um, how are you going to go about doing that? And what are the first things or first steps? I think first step is before you do anything is budget. What's, what's your budget? I was going to say that like? too. Because I, it's funny, this is a, this came at the right time for me because I've just been helping for two years now build a grow. And it's one of those grows to where both of us are seasoned growers. And it's like, what would you want if you could get anything you wanted? 
pretty much not not quite you know we do have budgets but so we're going crazy with it and, and it's resulting in the trichome forge which is like a home grow but set up like a commercial grow with you know rolling tables and you know the whole nine yards so if the budget's not a big deal then yeah that's what i'm going to go for but i mean that's not the case in 95% of the time, you know, when you're talking to home growth, usually budget's a big deal. And it's the, one of the biggest restrictions. So I would say the most important thing to sit down first is really sit down and you, you think it might not be important, but it really super is, is figure out your budget. Um, and then you can kind of figure out of that budget, what you want to invest towards each thing. And, you know, lighting is probably going to be pretty high up there. Um, uh, and depending on your space, you you might want to go for a uh, like say a tent for the you know the ease of it or if, if again if budget's not a thing you'll build build that sucker out and insulate it you know what I mean as an actual room so budget is just key absolutely I mean this is literally called the cheap home grow and one of the first episodes I ever did back with the former host was talking about how I built out my home grow in a coat closet which is just a few square feet um, like five square feet on the large end and my bedroom is even smaller than that and one of the things that we did on that episode or one of the follow-ups was literally going through like line by line item by item like what I purchased to get my grow set up and some of the cost of that stuff has actually gone down a little bit uh, thankfully I think um, although lights are still expensive, there are some good affordable options that didn't used to be available, um, in the lower price ranges that will actually produce like pretty damn good quality bud. And for a you know, number of years, I think that's one of the few things across the board, LED lighting across the board, across all quality levels, you know, high end to low end across the board have come down in price, which is nice. I hope that trend continues. Oh yeah, that's huge. That's one of the you know, things that we like to see. It's one of the few counter trends in all of consumer products right now, right? Everything is getting more expensive except for LED lights. And that's actually like, you know, ideally technology drives the cost of uh, things down and, and LED lighting is still on that sort of tech curve. You know, it's getting more efficient, less expensive to produce. So the costs come down. They're highly useful because I mean... LED lights produce what is effectively like natural light in whatever color spectrum that you want, uh, mostly like white, cool white, soft white, warm white, whatever it is. But um, they can be used for, you know, shooting a film like a movie, uh, TV shows, your cell phone uh, to grow plants and many, many other things. So we're benefiting from a technology that has uh, cross application. And so the cost of that coming down, I think we'll continue to see for a little bit. But Stuff like the cost of our nutrients, our fertilizers have gone up for the most part. Uh, costs like the inputs for our our tents, like uh, even the materials, the metals, the tart, like the mylars and all that stuff. It's generally a bit more expensive than when I started back up a few years ago. So that is certainly a consideration. And um, I've seen some like kits, quote unquote, where it's like you can buy a tent with a light, with a fan, with a blah, blah, blah. And it might seem upfront like, oh, wow, that's a pretty good deal. Like I could buy it all just for, you know, 500 bucks or a thousand bucks or 1500, whatever it is. And um, sometimes those are actually a decent deal. And sometimes it's you're paying for the convenience of somebody else who purchased all that stuff essentially. And they're going to charge you 10, 20, 30% tax on top of it to essentially sell you that kit. Um, and sometimes they'll even sell you information along with it. So I think some of the, the things that you can do is sort of educate you. If you're listening to this show, you're already doing that, but learning a little bit about how to grow uh, before you actually start growing to realize like, what do you actually need? Sometimes there are pieces of equipment that are really expensive. Like I saw this thing called like the Cedo, S-E-E-D-O. It's like a 
all in one grow your own plant box. You basically put your plant inside the box and then it just takes care of everything else. And they make it seem like it's hundred percent automated and you're not gonna have to really do anything. Put a seed in there and you come back, you know, months later and you're gonna have a harvest. Um, ultimately I've seen a lot of the reviews and it's not that simple. It is pretty simple, but um, I think you get less than if you would have uh, actually, you know, made a setup, whether it's a tent or a grow room. But with that being said, I do want to give Brandon Rust a chance to introduce himself because he jumped in a little bit after the introduction. So Brandon, go ahead and uh, introduce yourself. Yeah, sorry, I'm late, everybody. Uh, Brandon Rust, if you're not already familiar, you can find me on Instagram at rust.brandon. You can also check out my company, Bokashi Earthworks at bokashieearthworks.net. Or .com, doesn't matter which one. Good stuff. Happy to have you. We're just talking a little bit about Ohio recently legalized, and they are going to have home grow. I think it's in the next 30 days. I'm not sure if it's legal yet. Um, I'm going to put it out there. Uh, 2020 Mendocino just did this. They did free packs for Ohio growers. So if you DM me and you're in Ohio and you want a pack of Velvet Punch, I'll give you a free pack for the next week. Uh, so seven days if you're listening live on the YouTube, probably a little less than that on the podcast. But over the next week, if you DM me, if you're in the U.S., the Ohio address, I'll uh, hook you up with a pack of Velvet Punch to get people growing. Although regs are admittedly a little bit more challenging than if you started off with like a femme. Um, I don't suggest autos for new growers, although a lot of people do try starting with auto femme. But I do think feminized seed might be a place to start. And that'd be something that I could mention is uh, genetics or something that you're going to want to start with. And if you are looking for them, not just for myself, but uh, I've made a little list of about 40 breeders who I think make actually really good uh, quality high uh, high quality tested genetics that are consistent. I have a page called Aromatic Akeens, or I don't know, probably mispronouncing that. I still that word from Tao, but it basically means seeds. <laughs> it's A C H E N E S. And there's a dot between the two words, aromatic dot Akeens. And everybody that that page follows, they're all breeders. And there's only like 40 or 42 people that I follow on that page, uh, just so that you can go there and be like, okay, well, I'm looking for seeds. I want to get them from a good person. And, you know, these are the ones that I vetted, not to say that those are the only 40, but those are 40 of the very, very good ones that are out there. So if you're looking for We've seeds, got seeds on our website, too, and we also now ship to UK, Australia and Canada. And we have Fem Fem Autos. We have. Uh, we have feminized photos, feminized autos, all kind of good stuff on there. Nutripods now. I, off here let me show you guys this before i have to close this tent up well, let me see you gotta switch my video okay, I'll turn it off. got you spotlighted my little gorilla glue i just pollinated this with black lime reserve to do lamarilla v2 and then this is my lamarilla right here they're about mm, three weeks old Nice. It's time for them to go to bed. <laughs> All good. Yeah, at least we got them on there before the uh, lights are turned off, or if they were already off. I don't know if that was flash, um, but I was kind of looking away, packable. Um, but from what I saw, it looked pretty good over here. And uh, yeah, shout out to you, Brandon. I know that the Limerilla that I smoked that you've grown and bred was amazing, and a lot of the crosses thereof have been very fire. So, um, are you you're carrying other breeders' work too, like the Auto Fem stuff that comes from a different breeder, right? Yeah, Gem Seeker. So he's somebody that works with uh, for Bokashi Earthworks, and he has his own little thing that he does. And so we'll do like little projects together, and then he also does a bunch of other stuff. 
Um, there's going to be some other breeders too on our side. I was supposed to have uh, Max Yields on there, which is Third Coast Genetics, um, Gage Green Group, Green Body, Nerds Genetics. Here's another one of my uh, thing. This is all. This is just a two by two tent, but this is the Blueberry Train Mac uh, F2s that I'm going to be hunting through. And then if I find anything that I really, really like, I'll reverse it to do a feminized release. And then I'm also looking for like a really nice stud. These are pretty nice. They're all like really uh, short and stocky. I definitely prefer the regs myself, but I do see the place for feminized seed for sure because uh, it is certainly a convenience factor for new growers, especially who don't want to do sex testing or uh, sorting out of the males to prevent accidental pollination. My Arizona tester, <laughs> I didn't, you know, go through the whole, they're, uh, you know, close to the family. So I didn't give them all the details and information, I guess, that maybe other growers would have already had just from their personal experience. So they grew a few plants. And by the time I went and visit them, uh, they had a male and a female, so they were completely fucking seeded as shit. But I was still impressed to see, you know, uh, plants growing in, in Tucson, Arizona, outdoor, full sun. So uh, the fact that it survived that and, and looked pretty good. I'll, I was like, all right, we're going to chop this male down now and let the females kind of try and do their thing. But they were still super heavily pollinated already at that point. But uh, we've got a good question for Dr. MJ. And it says, if I were setting up a new commercial grow, what would you look for in a light? Is there a compromise in efficiency? um diode brand diode per watt l90 what are you looking for thanks um you know a few things are different i suppose in, in setting up a, a commercial space than a lot of home growers have to think about one is that you're going to offset the heat so there's more of a you sort of already know that you're gonna have to cool whatever you heat up um, so it puts kind of double pressure on the efficacy numbers, the photon efficacy. But you want to start like you would in, in a smaller grow with sort of how much light do you need? How many fixtures are you going to need in order to get that sort of much light? We usually budget to run lights at like 80 to 90 percent um, to get enough light when you're starting off in, in a commercial space, at least. Um there is a compromise on efficiency and cost efficiency. I mean, there's always a budget and, you know, you're going to get different bids and you're going to look at different options. And um, it, depending on the size of your facility, you're going to be talking about like hundreds of thousands of dollars difference in, in the bids that you get from different companies. So there's always going to be a, a budget consideration there. Um and, you know, the important thing to think, you don't want to, you don't want to sell out efficacy too much. Um, cheaper lights usually get lower photon efficacy, which means that they're going to, they're going to get less light per watt, which we're going to run them up to whatever our, our PPFD targets are anyway. So it's just going to mean that we're running more power into those rooms when we get a, a less efficient fixture or array of fixtures right you're just going to be ending up running more power more power means more heat more heat means more cooling offset so that's what i mean you're sort of like getting double pressure in terms of thinking about photon efficacy um but there's still sort of wiggle room i don't think it's worth you know throwing the the sink out the window to get the most efficacious lights 
if you can save a lot of money and, you know, get a slightly less efficacious light, there's almost always a trade-off there when you're looking at, at different lights, right? You could save some money by getting a slightly less efficacious light, or you could sort of keep investing money and chasing that last little bit of efficacy. The the point of sort of economically rational investment for both home growers and commercial growers isn't going to be at the extremes on either side. It's going to be sort of somewhere in the middle. Um, and when you're when you know you're paying for cooling, it is probably a little bit more towards the let's make sure we're getting good, efficient lights. Um, you know, and diode brand, I don't think really matters. Just getting to some of the other aspects of this question. Um, it's performance that ends up mattering. So you can get a really the best brand diode and not put enough of them in the fixture and end up with a fixture that doesn't run very efficiently. Um, so the number of diodes is, is, you know, almost more important, but it's everything comes together. It's really performance that you want to be able to see in the end. That's why I think that photon efficacy kind of everything comes together and, and, you know, your fixture creates some light and it uses some electricity to do it. We measure both of those and, and how good of a job did you basically do to do that? Um, spread is just as important as efficiency sometimes if you've got one that's like hyper efficient but it has a shitty ass spread like it's all concentrated right in the middle well see that's a that is a difference i should have said that because i didn't even think about distribution distribution is huge for home growers it's huge in small rooms and small spaces because you know we have often one light and it's got to light everything from corner to corner it's one of the big things that i evaluate lights on is distribution in a single fixture test but when you're running, you know, a, a commercial run with a grow room with 30 to 60 to 90 lights on the, the ceiling, each individual light doesn't have to do a very good job in distribution. Like, it, it's just not a thing that you have to worry about in at that scale. Um, it, it is, if you're running vertical, if you're trying to get your lights really close to the plants, there, there's some sort of special operations where you'd be paying attention to that. But generally, the most efficient way to set up a commercial space is to fully light the room, set the lights high and let it fly. So you're, you're not sort of running the lights really close to the plants. And for that reason, it doesn't matter if the, the fixtures themselves distribute the light as well, basically. Right. Yeah, like you showed with the uh, Mars Hydro, I think it was the TS-2000, they were kind of like a long bar. And in a two by four, it did pretty well. But in a four by four, it fucking crushed because like the cross of it was even Move more efficient. Four by four. Right. They start sharing light instead of bouncing the light off the walls. And, you know, if you had like six of them, that's like having a six bar array at that point. Right. Over like a bigger yep. space. You're basically creating a multi fixture array on the ceiling of a, of a large grow room. Well, in greenhouses, even do the truss light where it literally just runs down the truss of the greenhouse. And it's a, a yeah. literal like a. a a cannon of light that they just do that blasts. To, exactly. That's to, to hide in the shadows also of the greenhouses so that you don't have a light that's basically casting a shadow from the sun because the, the sun is still going to be the primary light in those greenhouses. So yeah, they design these these single bar fixtures. The, the other one Mars makes like SP6500, I think, is a bar like that, really powerful bar that fits right on. It's not good for tents. It's not meant for tents. Yeah, and that's a good thing to consider. And uh, another thing is that certain companies and, and states, even local power districts, 
have rebates with certain companies. Yeah. So you could, let's say oh. like one is a thousand dollars and the other one is 1500. Uh, yeah. but then you get a, you know, four or five, $600 rebate on the $1,600 light and it brings it down. Um, that can really make the difference. And the other thing is sometimes yeah. like if one's a thousand and the other one's 2000, but one is, you know, 2.9 efficiency, like the top of the fucking curve. And the other one's like 2.5 or 2.6, that small of a difference, I think is, you know, better to get the cheaper light that's almost as efficient yeah i'd run the numbers on it and i'd, I'd in a real commercial grow we'd run the numbers on that and we'd cost project out so when when's that going to be our, our point of cost recovery on this um and it, it's often worth paying a few extra dollars but some of the most efficient lights are charging such a premium they're like twice as much money as the other lights are so it, it's generally not worth chasing that last 10 13 yeah. Can I chime in here real quick? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the things that I've noticed, because I've worked with lots of different LED companies, uh, but have you seen any of the, have you worked with any of the light or tested any of the lights that have the directional lensing technology? Yeah. You have? Yeah, it's appropriate for a, a different style of grow. It's not really appropriate for how I'm talking about setting up like a large flower room, for example, if you had, you know, V-track benches and you were trying to put as many plants into a room as, as you could, um, doing anything to, to direct the light. That, I've set up rooms with LEDs that have directional lensing technology, uh, huge rooms, even small grows. Uh, do but you light the full room, Brendan, or do you just try to put the light onto the plants themselves, like hang the lights pretty low over the plants? Are you lighting the, the aisles too? Well, I do, uh, you know, I, I have plants, I mean, uh, beds with a light that is the, you know, same width, so like a four by yeah, four. Yeah, exactly. So if you're lighting a room like that, then it, it does, because you're basically trying not to light the aisleways. I, I approach lighting. Yeah, I'm not sure if you know what I mean, though. That okay, so there's there's different types of uh of fixtures, right? And there are some that have like a lens that the diode is encased in a lens, and then there yeah. are style lights that just have like a piece of plastic that covers the diodes. There's what what I've seen right. mainly for like most efficient. The most efficient LEDs are the ones that have those directional lensing technology that's what i've okay. seen it, it, actually the most efficient just in terms of a raw output are leds that don't have any lenses the lenses themselves will always lower the efficacy they'll lower the output um they can make the output more useful sometimes and that's why we sort of make that compromise have you, have you uh let me get back to the point either an s-tech or a fos light because those are the only two that I think have this directional lensing technology. What it essentially- Yeah, I've have... talked to the FOS people quite a bit, Brandon. But let me get back to the, the point on that I was trying to make in terms of just different strategies of lighting. What you're talking about is really trying to match the light to the bench. So you're trying to the, fit the, the light to the bench, right? Um, and you talk about sort of, it, it's almost fit that way. Um, that that's one strategy for how you light a room i approach it as we light the whole room we don't light the benches so we get v-track benches and lights up on the ceiling so i'm trying to light the square footage the floor every part of this room not just where the plants are 
um, every grow that I've been in that I've tested that tries that to, whether they have directional lensing or not, that tries to, so foes lights, um, whether it tried to just light the benches, end up with much less even PPFD. And it's... No, that's the thing. That, that's why I tested it with the with the lensing technology. You get an even distribution of light. That's why. That's why I was saying, in my opinion, yep. all of the lights that I've tested have, and that I've you know, and I use meters, a light meter. You get a yep. more consistent reading at the canopy, which is going to be more efficient because if you're not lighting aisles, and that's a walkway. And you're lighting that, you're wasting energy. Well, the walkways are movable, so you're right. If you're if you're in a, a place with fixed benches, I'd approach it differently. But in a flower room, there, there's basically two strategies: you light the room or you light the benches. And the benefits of lighting the room, um, it's going to be much more even distribution of light everywhere because you're lighting the whole damn room. It doesn't matter where the benches are. And once you've lit the whole room, now your goal is to fill the room with as many benches as you can. So we do V-track, not roll top. Roll top benches, you can't squeeze as many of them in. So we design rooms with V-track where you only have one aisle going down and it basically shifts. You have to roll all the, the benches out of the way. Um, that's by far the way that you can load the most plants. So we get up to like, over 80% bench utilization rate inside the rooms. So in a flower room, 80% is canopy, not walkway, right? And so when you're right, we're, we're lighting 100% of the room, even though only 80% of the room is canopy, but it's really the most efficient way to get that kind of output in that room. Plus the plants grow out over the tables. Uh, we, this is the we're, we're I want to give you each one more minute on this because it's the cheap home grow and we're focusing a lot on commercial and not to say that there won't be any commercial growers in Ohio. Yeah, I'm sure some of you will get into the commercial side of things for sure and are already planning it or already uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that. But I don't want to focus too, too much on this. And I think we've kind of hit well, it pretty I'd hard. Like to, but can I the, you guys are both talking about two different things. Brandon's talking about growing in just the aisles. Doc's talking about growing in the entire room. But I will say. I'll give uh, some agreements and Doc's point of if you have 80% of the room filled with tables, the plants don't just stay on the table. They grow a little bit outside of each table. And so they feel more like 90% of the room. And so you're be honest, best yeah. off to light, in my opinion, in that situation with that type of table, 100% of the room. But if you have a fixed table and, and beds that are in a fixed location, you can hang the lights closer and light so you're not directing as much towards the walk paths but you have ultimately a little bit more walk path because it's a fixed walk path even with the rolling tables uh you have a little bit more walking space that's not being grown on yeah and with the roll top tables you just roll them back to the position that they're where like so they're centered under the lights every right. time um it, yeah there's there's benefits to doing it both ways for sure i just wanted to clarify that i was talking about a different way of lighting rooms and so it, when you're lighting the whole room, directional lenses don't matter. They only matter when you're lighting the benches. And, and you're speaking to my comment on on spread of the light being a factor that's exactly. more important to a home grower where my considerations is typically for, like you said, one light in a tent or a few lights in a smaller grow space, which, you know, you're taking advantage of the highly reflective walls. You're usually hanging 
uh, close, you know, to the either like Spartan style where you've got it as high as it can be essentially, and you can dim and, and do other things like that, or you can lower it down onto the plants as well. Uh, and, you know, those are both approaches that can be effective in a home grow that are similar in effect to the, uh, what you're seeing in these two different styles of commercial. The other group, I will say science LEDs, I believe used what they were calling, uh, optics instead of lenses, uh, or, lenses something. or something. But yeah. to another point that doc was talking about, just from like a physics perspective, if you just think about like the raw light blasting out unrestricted, it's going to be its most efficient. If you start to narrow it down with like a magnifying glass, it's going to get more hyper-focused on those spots. So you can get higher readings. So like Brandon's saying, like he's getting better readings on his canopy. That's because if you hung a same light without an optic at equidistance, uh, it's going to be harder for it to get that amount of light down to that same spot. On those that photons are going elsewhere. Right. So the lens focuses them where they want to, but some of them are consumed in the process. Exactly. And that's just, it's like, uh, you know, your efficiency drops a little bit, but your focus increases a lot. So there is a benefit to it. It's just, there's a trade-off, like how focused are you going to get? Is it like a magnifying glass, like, you know, cooking an ant or, you know, is it just like uh, you're narrowing in that light a little bit? So there's a, a range of, of different lenses or optics and things like yeah. that to consider. So it will be one final thing about those just for home growers that matter because there are home grow models that, that have this on them too. Um, I, I think there's a bit of a trade-off. They, they require really running at the height that they're designed for. Um, so they're focusing the light and they're designed to be hung, say, 12 inches, like 30 centimeters above the canopy. You, you, they're really going to be best there. That's sort of where they're going to hit their target. And if you're not at the right height, then they're basically going to miss the target a little bit. Um, some fixtures are, are lensed in such a way really to keep all of the light into their own shadow but most of them are designed to sort of throw it out a little bit beyond sort of the fixture of their own or sort of their own footprint. So if it's meant to be hung at 12 inches, you got to hang it at 12 inches um, to get the best results, I would say, with one of those lights. I wanted to chime in on the question a little bit, too. Um, I'm still kind of a baby in the lighting industry as well, as far as the industry goes, but I'm already seeing, you know, my tip to you is cut out all middlemen. Don't go through grocery stores and websites. Just go to the right directly to the manufacturer of the lights that you're looking at. Ask for quotes directly from them. And like I think it was Jack that brought up the the rebates. That that's huge in the United States right now. And uh, depending on what utility that you're using. And whether you're new construction or old construction that's upgrading, I mean, I've seen with working with Grandmaster level uh, LEDs, I've already seen some people get brand new lights and then money back. Like they got paid to get new lights when they switched up from HPS. Um, so you just have to work with a company that's been working with the utilities to play their games so that uh, you can uh, get your full refund and uh, that can really leverage that can change your decision like jack was saying it, it might change your decision from one light that you really might want but can't afford to one that you're kind of settling for well hell here's this rebate now the one that you wanted and thought you couldn't afford is cheaper than the one you were settling for so well yeah, actually they, most of the utility <laughs> rebates require that they be ul certified or etl certified 
right yeah um, well but yeah that's definitely shout out to my leds we're all certified so it does pay to have that for a commercial facility because i tend to think that as much as home growers might be fullering and things like that uh, commercial facilities are and it, I, I think there should be an sop and then cover up the lights or raise them high enough that they're not getting hit um mm -hmm. but I see so many times that that doesn't happen. So having at least a protective coating, because one of my favorite brands is HLG and they don't put protective coatings on their lights. And I've seen some people get upset because they fully, like the one guy, like I saw his light, he was like complaining, like, oh, look, I have two rows of dye. I was all burnt out. And I'm like, dude, I could see spray dots all over the, the light. Like this is not a waterproof, you know, LED. Like you can't just go in there and spray an electric, yeah, I wouldn't spray my laptop. It's not waterproof, right? <laughs> I'm not just going to take a, a hose and start spraying it and expect it to like continue to work as expected. So I do think that it's a little bit comical when people don't read the actual certifications and, and instructions. Like some are and some aren't. But that being said, I would still prefer even the waterproof lights not get sprayed directly or at all if you can avoid it because they'll run more efficiently over time. They don't have to be cleaned as often. Um, so Ultimately, I think it is good to make some sort of standard operating procedure to cover them or raise them as high. Even raising them, you'd be shocked. Like put some toilet paper on top of one of the lights and then spray and you'll see toilet paper is very sensitive to water. It'll like start to fall apart as soon as it gets a little bit wet. You'll be like, holy shit, there's water all over this light that Especially I wasn't expecting. Like a fogger or something. I mean, yeah. It it, like on the one hand, we're trying to to use this really fine mist to distribute the the foliar applications, be them pesticides or, or nutrients. Um, on the other hand, that's getting everywhere. So whether you're kind of spraying them at the lights or not, some's going to get on the lights. And some of the stuff that we spray is much more sort of damaging than other stuff. So I think we've talked lights a lot. Does anybody have any final thoughts on lighting before I'm going to go like lightning round, new grower, kind of like yeah, what items do you use? Stuff. Why do you use them? This or that kind of thing. And we're all going to weigh in and kind of get, you know, five or six opinions on every single like new grower item. You know, is it one thing I wanted to add? I thought everybody talking about budget is a really good place to start. The other thing I think a brand new grower should start with is a harvest expectation or a harvest goal. So some sense of how big this operation needs to be in order to kind of reach your goal. Are you trying to get an ounce a year or a pound a month? I mean, I, I need to kind of get a, a sense of where you want production to be. And that together with your budget number it really help, where those two things kind of intersect, we, we can figure out if it's going to be possible or not. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to add that, have a, a have a sense of how much you want to, to grow, help manage the expectation. Personally, I just kind of went at it with like, here's the space that I have in my home that I can dedicate to the grow. And the budget was like, here's what I have currently. So I got like a tent, which I needed to start. And then from there I was like, all right, well, I need, you know, a light and some fans and, you know, pots, soil, or in my case, I actually started with cocoa. So I got my nutrient line, just the A and the B. And then I slowly started adding like the, uh, you know, in my case, like little extra bottles for like rooting or whatever, uh, microbials and, and things like that. And um, I kind of piecemealed it. I did a little bit at a time. And I think that a lot of new growers will do that. Like, I don't think many are going to buy every single piece of the equipment, wait for like the seeds to get here, you get all the soil together and like if it was like a super soil, like prep it for like two or three months ahead of time. Like most people are going to like pop the seeds as soon as they get them and be like, oh, fuck, 
how do I keep it going now? Like, do I even have a light? They might've done it in a windowsill. I saw some people do it full in the windowsill. Like Doc even mentioned his wife did one on like the back patio or in, in the back window, like by behind the couch, the couch in the window, like in our sliding glass window behind the couch. Um, yeah, she grew up there. So it doesn't need to be overly complicated. So don't think that you need a thousand dollars to get started. Don't think that you need 2000 or 5,000 or 10,000 to get started. You could spend that much easily if you wanted to build out a grow room or just hook up a, a tent with the ultra premium, every single best piece of equipment. Um, but it's not necessary at all. Like I have a kitchen cabinet for my veg space that I have a sub $100 light in that I put a little bit of Panda film, which is, you know, a few bucks that taped it to the walls of the cabinet. So it's white and reflective through a plastic tray down. And I've got a few pots or solo cups that I use and I still veg in that and it works. I have a single fan and it's got a few settings. Um, but you know, that's all the equipment that, and I flowered in that in spot. Like I never thought I was going to, but I did just to experiment and it worked. I was able to get, you know, a couple ounces out of it. So in a two by one veg space that turned into a little flower space, uh, when in need, it, it's incredible how little you might need to get started, even in an indoor grow where you're like supplying electricity. Like that light was, uh, HLG 65. It was $99 on Amazon. <laughs> this was a few years ago. It's probably even cheaper now. And there's much better models available that are, um, higher output and things like that. But like I said, tiny space got started really yeah. quickly. Um, I started with fabric pots because I was reading lots of good things about them. I saw plastic pots at the grocery store. I saw these tank tread looking like air pots and um, there's lots of options out there. So I will say I've had good experiences with the fabric pots. I also tried a rain science grow bag, which is like recycled wetsuits. That is a kind of a interesting material. It's like a woven, uh, it, they promote air pruning, but I've also used plastic pots with good results. So I, I think that any pot will work, but I'm curious, uh, Spartan, what do you think about pots getting started? Uh, do you have a pot that you prefer over other types of pots? And um, have you tried multiple types? I've tried all kinds of pots. Um, but I mean, for me, my situation, what I love the most is the sip containers. I've been growing in them for years, ever since I've tried them, little city pickers. So I would say, yeah. And I, and I prefer plastic over fabric. Fabric's okay for outdoor if I'm trying to transplant into outdoor. And I'll just let the roots grow through it. I'll just transplant the whole pot into the ground just ease of use but um other than that i'm not a big fan of the fabric pots i like the plastic makes transplanting so much easier agree 100 percent. so i i tend to agree with that i do like the i think it's a michigan brand easy swap pots they're a cloth pot but it has snaps on the side and uh, it opens up kind of like a chinese food box where um it sort of like origamis into a little square and then it can open up completely flat so when you transplant you're literally just taking the root ball and dropping it uh, into, I, I also prefer the sip, which is a plastic container. Um, but it's a sub irrigated planter or pot. I'll forgive anybody that just finishes in a, like a fabric. If you want to pot up through a series of plastic, because it's easier to pot out of, like, I, I get that. But what about like the final pot being fabric Spartan? Is that okay? Or you just don't see a benefit? I don't see a benefit to the, the final pot being fabric. It's a pain to ask the water and yeah i think it does depend on your your how you're watering how you're approaching your you know whole grow management probably yeah. and also soil, and, I'm, and i'm growing soil too that's another caveat yeah. and that just gives me a whole layer of dry which is not cool in soil yeah and i'm i'm watering eight or nine times a day so yeah that's whole different, Plus, like, coming at it from different yeah. perspectives. if you're in vegas where it's like dry or tucson arizona where it's dry um 
a plastic pot might be ideal because it keeps a little bit more moisture in for a little bit longer. And in a case like cocoa, where you're watering eight times a day, doesn't matter as much, but for like soil and things like that, it can be a consideration where uh, fabric pots, if you're in an area that's like Florida, where it's extremely humid and you're really having like uh, high humidity and trying to manage it more, the fabric pot aerating and, and drying out and like having that dry back a little bit quicker and more easily is a benefit. So it does depend on where you're at. So Ohio, uh, being born and raised there has all the seasons, especially if you're like, I was kind of impacted by the lake effect. They get really heavy snow and really hot summers and spring and fall are like kind of like the traditional, you know, what you would think of spring and falls. So they get a little bit of everything and that makes it kind of difficult to set up in comparison to like something like Southern California, where it's fairly stable all year round. Um, so you'll have to consider ways of mitigating the heat during the summertime. And you'll also have to manage extreme cold during the wintertime, which means that you'll probably have to consider having a heater or air conditioning. But the good thing is most homes in Ohio actually already have those built into them. So you can use your house as like the long room and use your central air if you have that uh, to, if you set your house to a comfortable place, oftentimes your plants will be in a comfortable place. So that's a, a good thing to consider for any new grower. Uh, if you're comfortable, then the plants are most likely going to be comfortable. They might be a little bit warmer because the lighting and other equipment that you're running in the grow area heats it up a little bit. And that's often actually a benefit to keep them kind of in that kind of tropical. a lot of questions about how you manage the exhaust air right from the tent. If, if you're, if you take it all the way out of the house, um, that's like leaving a window open with your AC on or whatever, right? You're like blowing all of this air basically out of the system, which makes your AC run a little bit harder, but most houses can keep up with that. Um, if you ducked it back in, if you just let it like escape back into the house, then you've got to, you know, recool it again. Um, if you're struggling with managing some aspect of your grow climate, try switching whichever one of those that you're doing now, try doing the opposite of that. Um, it is often sort of what solves both problems. So just keep both of those options in mind where, where you put that warm, moist air coming out of the tent makes a big difference. Something I thought about with the pots that Matthew might uh, have thoughts on, those tank tread style, um, I think they're called air pots. Is that the name? They like It's got like a bunch of holes that are probably uh, yeah, I use dime them. sized. I, use um, I heard people say, speculate, that potentially if you had some sort of root borne uh, you know, pests, they'd be more easily able to ingress and egress through those holes in the pot and go from one plant to another. And I'm curious, Matthew, do you have any thoughts on that? Would it be any different than a fabric pot or a solid walled plastic pot? I'm sure that there is a difference, but I don't think it's an important one because even in a more difficult situation, they get they get their way pretty yeah, well. They figure it out. They, they get from them. one yeah. plant to another so, I mean, effectively. Yeah. So I mean like I suppose but um, if you get other benefits, out, that's not a, a good enough IPM is just have a good. No, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, if if the dime shaped holes do something else really great for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, find another solution. Good point. Yeah, the holes in the dimpling pattern keeps the roots from spiraling and allows air to ingress. So they're very effective. I, I see people grow killer plants in them. So, I mean, I, I, yeah. I'm not like uh, opposed to them. I think that they're also pretty interesting that they can you use like a little screw to like seal it and essentially you can unwind it to wash them. You can almost like power wash them or like soak them in a solution. Yeah. So uh, put them in the dishwasher. That works too. Yeah. And, put them in the uh, dishwasher. It sterilizes them. 
um washes them pretty good a little bit of perlite or whatever can can get caught in the filter no problem um i think there's other kind of food waste that we probably put into the dishwasher that's that's more damaging to the the dishwasher for sure Uh, brandon did you have any thoughts on the pots do you have a preferred pot um i got the new nutripot the nutrigrill pot that's my new favorite pot and is that Uh, that's not a full-term thing yet though that's like uh just to start your seeds well so once we get a factory we'll be able to build them to different sizes so people who want to do trees up to you know different it'll have a variety of sizes like spartan said oh wouldn't it be cool if he was able to grow a plant in something like that and then just transplant it right into the ground so that's the idea i'm only doing two sizes right now because i have to manufacture everything manually but once we have a uh, a factory that that we can um produce different sizes then that's what we'll do so right now uh being that you don't have other sizes and that before the NutriPot was a thing because this is like a relatively newer product even for your um product line um what are the other like how do you feel about plastic pots versus a fabric pot or the air pots that we were just talking about it doesn't really matter to me you know what i mean like uh they both have their pros and their cons that's fair to say um noah the grow do you have any thoughts on pots before maybe we move on to the next topic sorry couldn't mute yeah so a few things that i was thinking about when i was listening to everyone here um i like the plastic pots for a lot of reasons so like if i have a bigger pot or even a medium pot and i'm using like a scrognet i can use a pot a hard pot you know a hard plastic pot to put that plant up into the net I can also like like I'm kind of older and I have like a back issue, so like my newer plants, I can take an old like you know seven gallon, ten gallon pot and just stack like little you know like clones like three three clones and like you know Dixie cups in it and different things. I can use those hard pots for different things. Like I use the hard pots just to like because I'm like you know I don't have a bet you know the benches I don't do nothing like that. So uh, I'm just you know I'm cheap homegrown, so I use the the plastic pots for a lot of different things and them being hard, I use the, the shape and uh, you know, that to my advantage. So that's what the main reason why I like them. When you pick them up with one hand, a fabric pot, if you try and pick it up with one hand, the plant is almost always going to like tip away from you and you could potentially spill that plant out and it could be a big ass mess. And even picking up multiple plants, like if they're small enough, like solo cups or even one gallons, you can pick up two plastic pots just by pinching them together and like lifting it up and then walking them across to a different area where with the fabric pots much more difficult to do so oh, the air pots man true. because they got that little interlocking thing you can get like eight of them across like this and and hold them all at once yeah that's convenient you know that type of stuff does matter for some people and um i'm glad that you brought that up noah and uh something else in consideration of pots that i forgot to mention because a lot of new growers don't know what size to get so i start in a solo cup like a, they would you know red solo cup you party with you cut a few holes in the bottom, three or four, and you throw some soil in that. You can get some seed starter mix, and that's a quick, easy way to get started. But I go to the easy swap pot, one gallon, which is more like a two gallon traditionally, and from that to an earth box. But uh, Spartan, what is your pot sizing strategy from beginning to end? If it's a seed or a clone, very start all the way to when it gets into your sip. Whatever I have around. So it could be a half, it could be a half a gallon to a gallon to a 
you know, to sip container. Usually once it gets to a gallon, I don't do anything between one gallon and my final sip container. Um, I have done that, um, but I really don't like that because I, that's a lot. That's a huge transplant when you put like a three gallon or something into it, into the sip. And it's usually too tall. So um, I try not to get much bigger than one gallon before I do my final transplant. That's a great point. I've seen people with the sip, uh, they preloaded soil and then they tried to transplant like the root ball and it, they had like a big lump, you know, like they ended up building around. Uh, so I almost did that a couple of times. I got a little baby lump, but it was, you know, coverable by the either shower cap or my mulch layer effectively enough. So it still ended up working out. But um, Doc, what are your pot size considerations from uh, start to finish? It, it depends on when I'm going to finish in um, several of my recent grows. I've finished in one gals done sort of higher density grows with smaller plants. So they're all starting like a solo cup size, the smaller air pot though, and then go into the one gallon air pot. Um, I'll also go directly from the smaller air pot to three gallons, I guess. Um, I, I used to go through like a seedling bag. So a small fabric pot um, up to like a half gallon fabric pot up to a three gallon fabric pot. So if I was doing fabric, I'd probably still do that. Those little air pots that I'm starting in are kind of like small, but they give enough room to the plant that you can get a pretty good root mass up and, and go right into a one gallon from there. With cocoa, I experimented with three gallon and, and one gallon. And again, I'm just in a five square feet. But the three gallon plants just got so massive and I wanted more plant uh, because even at like a count of six, that would be like two plants versus like six plants. If there were two plants in three gallons or six plants in one gallon and the six plants in one gallons performed amazingly in cocoa. So that gave me variety and fairly solid yield. Like one of the plants yield five and a half or six, six ounces out of one gallon cocoa pot. And I was just like blown the hell away. I was like, that was a run where I had to cut a few oh, nails. Yeah. And I only had three plants in the same space, but two of those yeah, plants yeah. beasted the hell out. I, I, yeah, I mean, I hope for, I don't know, it, it depends on sort of how much square footage the plants have. When, when I'm doing the, if I'm going to give plants like four square feet, so like two plants in a four by two tent, for example, or four in a four by four, I'd go up to three gallon pots, three gallon air pots for plants that size. Um, but if you're staying sort of under that size and, you know, it, it, it kind of doesn't, there's a, in high frequency fertigation in cocoa, it, the pot size, you can grow really big plants in pretty small pots. We kind of test this. We do the party cup challenge sort of every year um, in our different grow challenges. People grow pretty big plants in their party cups, but I mean, there's a limit to how big the party cup plants can be, right? They're, they're somewhat sort of choked off. They all get root bound in their party cups by the time they're harvested. I see like three or four cola, pretty healthy. And then it's like the ones that get like five or six seem to be a little more scraggly. But like I've seen some with like four healthy ass colas coming out of a party cup. And I'm like, that looks as good as a lot of people's one gallon grows. Like the, if you compare it to like an autoflower, similar size. Yeah. And to a certain extent, it's, I don't know it, it, the container size and high frequency fertigation. It's like if you're willing, if you can fertigate frequently enough and kind of stay on top of it. In a certain sense, it's easier to be in a smaller container because 
you can turn on a dime um, and the plants can be very responsive to you. But like if you screw anything up, the plants can be pretty responsive to that too. So it can be, you know, a little bit more, more taxing and being in a larger pot gives you sort of a bigger buffer right, to work through. Perfect um, way of saying it. Yeah. I, I experienced that. And uh, even if you just like wanted to water once or twice a day, which is still considered high frequency fertigation um, in those pot sizes, it can be effective. So um, something to consider. Yeah. But if you're in the, if you're in a pot size, like say you're in one gallon and, and you know, our buddy small poker and crispy wannabe, we're just doing hand watered one gallon pots. Right. And kind of pushing that to the limit, but it, you can't miss a watering. I mean, it, you, if you're, but sort They'll of right up against those margins, the plants are gonna like droop badly and get yellow, like tips, like pretty quick. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and, and suffer. So it, it does. You know, you walk closer and closer to the line, and you can, like I said, you can have really dynamic results when you do that. But you can also crash. So stepping back a little bit, potting up in a little bit more comfortable size container gives you a little bit more buffer room to work with. I think sure. that's a great way to think about it. Noah, what's your uh, approach with the potting up uh, pot sizes? Well, it depends. Uh, but I like to just use solo cup. And then I used to actually just, because I, if I had a lot of, when I was running a lot of plants, I would just put them in from solo cups into maybe sometimes ones, but I've done it right into fives and just water it less. But as I've gotten more, you know, I've, gotten it to where i'm not growing as many plants um i'm definitely just go i'll go from either solo cup to one to i'll go into from a one to a five but i like to go from you know i'll go solo cup one gallon two gallon and then from the two gallon i'll go either to five or seven just depends you know if i'm putting two light two plants under a light under a thousand watt light i like to put them in tens or sevens and if i'm doing four i like to put them in fives so I'll go from two a two gallon pot right into a a five or a seven, ten. Uh, you, you're you're a little bit you know I probably try and get like a three. I have a, th a couple threes that I use and when I'm doing up to ten, but I haven't been even really doing that. I've been just doing like seven just because I'm constantly like running out. So I'm been just kind of behind, but I I do like to grow two pretty good sized plants in tens under one light. So. It just depends on what you're going for, what your, your plant count is, and you know all that stuff. That's a good point. Uh, I mentioned plant count earlier, but uh, it's not something any of us focused too heavily on. But that is something you could sort of... Uh, I'm not sure. I think Ohio is doing six. But if you want to have a little bit bigger plant, you could veg it for a little bit longer time. If you're wanting a higher yield, uh, that's a good way, especially if you have like the ability to make a veg space where you're growing the vegetative plant and then have a flower space where you're growing your flower. You can... Uh, set up some, something like a perpetual where you basically can veg for a longer period of time, uh, get your plants larger, and then constantly be shifting one or two plants every two to three weeks into your flowering space. And so that way you can allow the plants to get large enough in the vegging space that whenever you put them into the flower, you get a much larger yield than if you kind of shorten your veg. Um, so you could take advantage of that if you, if you absolutely need to with a smaller number of plants. I've seen, there's a guy called like the Scrog King who would fill up a four by four with a single plant and it'd have like 200 tops on it. And they were all nugged out. Like just, it looked 
like a beautiful, like an actual scrog, like a flat, perfectly yeah. flat canopy with every single square filled up with at least one beautiful bud, if not two. Uh, so it, it's possible to get, you know, a decent yield with even just a single plant like that. So don't be too concerned if your plant count is low, you can work around it and uh, just advocate for better laws in the future. The main thing is you got the foot in the door, Ohio, and, and congrats again on legalizing. Uh, Brandon, do you have any thoughts on the pot sizes? How do you like to start your plants and uh, what do you go to? Yeah, it's it's all really contingent on, you know, what I'm doing. Uh, but typically, I'll start a seed in a, you know, a smaller size cup, like a solo cup, and then I'll usually go from a solo cup directly into the beds or the final pot. But now I'm not going to be using solo cups. I'm going to be using Nutri-Row pots, you know, because that way I don't have to worry about transplanting. I can just take the whole thing, plant it in there. I'll use less fertilizer. It'll break down. The roots will grow right through it. And What size is that? So the ones that we have right now, I have the six flat three by threes, and then the four by fours are actually twice the volume. The four by fours are more a little bit larger volume than I think a solo cup would be. Okay. Yeah. Very good. Well, Matthew, uh, you're the last one for the pot size and and pot considerations. Um, one thing that I think of with a new grower. Sometimes it's tempting because often you'll read on forums or how to grow posts and, and even in our podcast, you've probably heard the bigger the roots, the bigger the fruits and things like that. And they'll talk about your root base is like the battery to your plant. And the larger it is, the bigger the potential of the yield up top, uh, more focus on soil with that. But even with cocoa, to some extent, that can be true. But something when it comes to IPM that I have seen with newer growers is if they go with like the largest possible pot that they can fit in their space and they don't get their plant big enough. Uh, so people tend to overwater and then maybe they're more uh, at risk to something simple like fungus gnats or even worse, like pythium, uh, root rot and things of that nature. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts about pot size generally, um, whether it's from a cultivation perspective on avoiding things like that, or if you just have any other general thoughts on IPM and pot sizes and even transplanting. Well, to, to your first point with regards to like, you know, the number one and number two things people do wrong, because a lot of people when they're first growing cannabis, I find there's a big overlap with people who haven't grown plants in general. So all of the typical mistakes, right, like overwatering or underwatering after you found out that you shouldn't overwater, um, you know, are, are, are common. Um, and then something to go with that would be all of the gross fungi and bacteria and things like that, that'll become a problem. Uh, so yeah, I mean, that's really important. I think that, I think that uh, it's important to know to that point, like what your problems actually look like. So obviously a lot of people know that I've talked about like springtails and mold mites and predatory mites, even in the soil, it might not have seen those things before and they'll freak out. So knowing that something is not a threat is in some ways almost as or more important because you don't want to be going after phantom problems. Then also kind of knowing what the uh, what some of these like, you know, water molds or fungi and things like that look like when they attack your roots, attack your crown of your plant uh, where the stem meets the uh, soil line. Yeah, I think of a course big, that's, you know, I think a big problem is oftentimes 
you could have misdiagnosis. Something may look like a nutrient deficiency, but it might be pathogen related or it might be insect related. Um, but one thing that Jack mentioned was fungus gnats. And here's a little pro tip. The most effective product that I have ever encountered. It's Nutripine. No. 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 Uh, okay. is, is, a, is a product called Microbe Lift BCM. So it is a, a Bacillus thuringiensis toxin. And it's us, it's it's marketed for uh, to put into stagnant water. So that you, way you kill mosquito larva, but the uh, fungus gnat is in a same family, I think it is, uh, and it works excellent if you use it as a, a drench for your media. It's not the same family, but it is uh, very closely related, those nemata, um, nematocera, those primitive flies. Yeah, definitely. BTI. Uh, goes so Bacillus thuringiensis israelensis goes after uh, fly larvae. So you're totally correct. Uh, that definitely helps out that that particular bacteria. Yeah, and also inexpensive. Shout out to the cheap home grow. If you want to be inexpensive or cheap, you can get the uh, mosquito dunks. I'm I'm not sure if Brandon mentioned that. I was listening on my phone as I refilled my water across the room. But the mosquito dunks are cheap, and there's a few other really big brand broad names that you can get at like your big box stores. Uh, yeah. The It'd same. You'd be surprised how widely available it is. What's in the mosquito dunks, but you can buy like a gallon of the liquid concentrate, and that's the business because you use that at about twenty milliliters per gallon of water, and you just water your plants with that like once every two weeks, and you'll never see fungus gnats. Good tip, and uh, to be honest, probably uh, better to have more concentration, as there are certain things that are becoming, I think, resistant but not this particular uh, insect. But uh, I think that's in relation to there's like BTI uh, corn and stuff out there and, and wheat maybe where they've like, uh, I don't know if it's a GMO Mostly thing. for caterpillars, BTK. BTK but yeah, no. you're right. They'll take the the genes out and yeah. So yeah, it's, it's BT, interesting. Cotton, soybeans, corn. Um, I'm not sure if there's BT wheat, but there's BT corn, BT soybeans, BT cotton. Interesting stuff for sure, but to uh, keep it on the, uh, the nice thing is that although this is, you know, focused on Ohio and whenever a new state or country becomes legal, they can be sent the link to this episode and we can, uh, you know, help educate and inform the people to start growing their own. So I'm not going to get into the sort of debate or reason why on this one, but I just want to go around the panel and we all say what media we grow in currently. And I'll start and I say, I'm growing in soil or like a soilless media, but most people call it soil. Uh, Doc, your name <laughs> sort of implies it. I think it's Coco. Yes, Coco. For those who don't know, this is Dr. MJ Coco. Is the, uh, yeah, it says it right there on, on the screen. But yeah, he's got a, I love the the book cover. Shout out to Smot Poker and Crispy Wannabe. I'm going to spotlight you just for a moment because right over Doc's shoulder here on what is our left side, you see a uh, cannabis bud kind of growing out of like an actual coconut. Uh, that's not like exactly how it's done, but uh, Spot Poker and Crispy Wannabe recreated this photo in real life, which was pretty awesome. And I'm sure somebody, uh, they could probably even find it and link it in the chat because I saw them linking other things earlier. They are a moderator, but yeah, it was pretty cool and they recreated that. So Coco yeah. is uh, Doc's solution and choice. Uh, Noah the Groa, what are you growing in now? Sorry. Uh, yeah, I'm growing in soil uh, organically. 
Um, I, uh, I actually have a really good new soul that I've been really liking. And, uh, I use a lot of like, uh, bio biz, uh, bottled, uh, nutrients just cause I have like, I feel like more control. Like if I can see a plant slack and stuff, but I can add it and it's more bioly available. And, um, yeah. Very cool. Um, and Brandon rust, what is the media of choice for you that you're growing in? I do modified growing mix, pot, uh, peat based soil. That's a much more articulate way of what I was trying to say earlier. Uh, but that is also what I'm growing in. Uh, then I'll pass it to Spartan Grown. So a peat based soil is what I'm going to say. <laughs> Same here. Peat based soil. All right. And uh, Matthew Gates, you're our, our IPM person. Are you uh, currently cultivating anything? Or if and when you do, what do you uh, typically tend to go towards? So just for me personally, when I'm growing personally, I don't really care about the the sorts of efficiencies that I might be more worried about in a commercial setting or something like that. I'm a traditionalist who likes to grow uh, in the soil, in the ground, believe it or not. But I'm not like anti um, the, the things I'm usually anti are are like uh, I, I'm not a huge fan of people using peat too much, <laughs> to be honest, um, natural peat and the harvesting of it. I'm a bit of a critic, but. I don't well, really have, well, well, besides that. Matthew, what yeah. if they use it only one time and continue to use it again and again and again and again and again and it's never used again? That's cool, right? That's better, certainly. That's certainly better, yeah. Yeah, I know. Um, if you can make something, if you can upcycle something, I'm not going to say no to that. Uh, my point is mostly that I'm not, um, I don't really have a whole lot of a, a problem with others. I don't typically go out of my way to get things like uh, rock wool or anything like that. But um, yeah, to be honest, uh, I'm a big fan of of soil and soil like media, generally speaking. But that's just, but that's mostly for personal reasons and not really uh, tied to all the other cool details I like to talk about. Anyways, and by soil you mean like sand, silt, clay, dirt stuff more I mean organic matter mixed in stuff you'd like dig up if you went outside somewhere exactly and, and preferably i don't even although i like to build things like um and i used to grow like herbs and things at home in like a raised bed for example um you know i like to also if i can i, I used to actually have a vegetable and an herb garden with a bunch of um uh garden giant mushrooms and the mycelium kind of laced in between. That was pretty cool. It was a cool project. And yeah. I would get some of those too, uh, for example. So I, I like I like those sorts of um, in, environments. But oftentimes, I'll just hack into the soil. And if I have to amend it, so be it. Good stuff. Well, uh, with that said, Brandon Russ had to get out of here. He messaged and then uh, quickly left the Zoom. So I didn't want to interrupt the flow of the conversation. But I do want to shout him out. Thank him very much for coming. And you can find his work and all of his products at bokashieearthworks.net and .com. So check him out. He's a great guy. I use a lot of his products and really like him. I like his uh, Micro Plus and uh, Bokashi, the actual Bokashi. And uh, I hear a lot of good things about the N-Humate, K-Humate, all of the other stuff like that. And it's similar to kind of what Noah was talking about earlier with like the BioBiz bottles, like organic, but in a bottle solution for people that want to give a little bit more kind of control and uh, direct, like I think chelated, uh, more immediately bioavailable organic options. So the next topic I think that we could touch on because Matthew actually sort of reminded me of it when he said rock wool. Uh, I almost always see that used in cloning. 
So I'll kind of refer to this as like your cloning options or solutions or um, medias. And Rockwool is one, but there's also these peat plugs that start off as like a kind of little compressed puck and then you hydrate it and it swells up into like a little ball. And then there's another product that's not quite that, but it looks almost like that. It comes pre, it's like a, they're called root riots or uh, rapid rooters. It's sort of like a spongy material. Um, I'm not sure. It might be cocoa. It might be peat. I'm not hundred percent sure what they it is. They make both. Oh, okay. So they, they do make both. Yep. And you could even like, I got a little soil blocker that I can make my own little soil blocks out of. And so there's lots of options for this kind of stuff, but um, I just want to go around the horn and, and ask uh, what you do. And there's also other options that I didn't list there, but I won't get into it because I know uh, Spartan will actually start us off with that answer. So what are your choices for using, uh, making a clone? If you wanted to cut a clone, uh, which for the, those new growers that aren't haven't ever done this before uh if you see like this plant behind me it's not a cannabis plant but imagining that it was uh if it was a branch you can chop that branch off and like i just did uh recently put it in a shot glass and replaced it with water every single day and now it has roots so that's now effectively a new plant it was alive the entire time i saw it's like leaves droop during the nighttime and then like pick up during the day and even just in a shot glass it was like still clearly alive like just hanging out there in my windowsill uh, but that was one way of uh, making clone and uh just an example of what it is and how it works it's a genetic replica of that plant that you cut it from. So Spartan Grown, how do you go about making your clones? I still always have four options available to me, but um, the number one option is uh, a plug, like a peat plug or a root riot plug or a cocoa plug, whatever. I like the plugs. I like the idea of not, not only for popping seeds, um, but for clones as well, the idea of how it holds moisture all the way around it. Like it, it holds the moisture there. It's like spongy uh, and, and it doesn't dry out easily. I like that about them. And um, it's easy for me to hydrate them if they do get dry and to check if they're, if, if they the moisture level on them. For me, I just squeeze them. If I see water squish out, I don't do anything. And if they, uh, if I squeeze them and no water squishes out, and what I mean by that is I squeeze the tops at the very tops of it and, and you'll see moisture like, come up with a with a pressure if you don't see moisture come up then i just dunk it in water and i'm done it's, it's almost like, like a sponge literally like yeah. if you squeeze the sponge like the water yes. that beads out exactly and then if, if i ran out of those i do have those uh compressed jiffy pucks like what you're talking about which is just peat in this little holder you just soak it in warm water and they expand out and same thing you can use use them just like a uh, a plug um, and then yeah. my third option would be just put it in a glass of water. If I, if I didn't have a Jiffy puck, which I have a whole box of them, so I, I don't know if that's going to happen anytime soon, but I'd put my cut just in a glass of water before I would not get my cuts. And then uh, lastly, if I was just out, I don't know if I was out of water somehow and I still, and, and I didn't have that as an option, I would go to my aloe plant and I would cut a little chunk off of that. And I would slam my cutting right into the aloe plant and they'll buy me at least three, four days uh, it can I, root straight in there. Yeah, it can root, in, root there. in there too. But I mean, I would still want to get it into like some kind of media pretty quick afterward. Yeah, no, I prefer that to stick it and then put it into like a, a plug if I'm going to use the aloe method. The other thing uh, that it kind of reminds me of is like people are doing the um, where they wrap basically one of the root riots around the outside of the plant while it's still alive. It's called like a air, air uh, layering. Air layering. Yeah. And you can 
basically wrap like a grafting tape or something around that. And that plant, while it's still alive, will start to grow roots out of that branch. And then you can just cut that off whenever it's ready. And then you plant that as a clone. But the thing that I thought you were going to mention that I kind of didn't tease was the uh, oxycloner, like using a hydroponic method. Oh, yeah. I don't, fuck, fuck that machine, man. I mean, it makes me mad. I mean, it's great in the wintertime when you can keep the water cold, but then one out of the two times you try to do it, you know, one month out of the year where it's super hot and you you catch uh, whatever, whatever the slime, you start getting the slime on the roots or not the roots, but the actual stalks before it even forms roots. And then they don't form roots and then you lose all your cuts. It just dies so, off. Yeah, that's a, a bummer. That's a big bummer. The, yeah, the biofilm so like, that grows really quick yeah so i don't know that's just not reliable to me so so i'll I say picked it off it's sitting on the shelf thankfully we don't usually get super super hot where i'm at we had some you know right now might be considered one of those times we're getting some santa annas and it gets up into like the mid 80s but uh even then i've found like a frozen water bottle and uh, I take the actual pump out of the system so the oxycloner is like a, a little box that has water in it and it has a lid and then there's a bunch of little rubber uh, circles that have a slit in them and you take that branch drop it in there it soaks in the water and then usually there's like a little air pump and an air stone that bubble to provide oxygen to make the water oxygenated so that the plants essentially uh, have more chance to create roots that's why in the shot glass example or the glass of water example spartan and i were talking about earlier you want to change it in the shot glass example i was doing it every single day because it's such a tiny amount of water but in a glass of water probably every other day or few maybe once a week at least um but that will provide enough oxygen within the water to allow the plant to grow roots and the problem with the oxycloner is everybody loves it the first time usually they get it out of the box it's brand new they maybe wipe the dust off or factory stuff to like get it clean before they get started and that first run, all 20 in the 20 site will root perfectly. And then like maybe the second run, all 20 root perfectly. But like it gets a little dirtier, a little dirtier. And then like you start to have what Spartan's talking about where you get some slimy roots. Uh, then at that point, I just, you know, ditched the pumps. And what provided me some success was I got the permaclone collars, which can be sterilized and uh, air pump outside of the actual uh, instead of being in the actual tub, the pool that's like, you know, circulating all that air which is how they recommend running it. Um, I run the air stone or air pump outside and I just run a tube through one of the collars that gets pushed into one of the corners. And that way, you know, you only have like a few inches of tube that sits into the water to essentially uh, not get, get super dirty. And the tube that I use is from one that's uh, sterilizable. I'm trying to think of the name. Um, I think they're called permaclone collars and permaclone makes uh, air tubing that is like more, um, I think it's a certain type of silicone used in certain medical things that is like uh, pre-treated to be antimicrobial. So it cuts down on how quickly it gets dirty, but eventually I just cut off that little inch that hangs in the water <laughs> uh, every couple times that I clone. But to be honest, I'm more of a seed popper, but the uh, seed, root, rapid rooters and root riots were very effective for me popping seeds, but it is possible to uh, overwater them. That is one of my first times using them i did keep them a little bit too damp so doing a little squeeze check is a, a good thing for sure and um i've been rambling but uh noah the grower i don't think i've asked you yet what is your uh preferred solution for going about clones i use the aero cloner uh i have a turbo cloner i got an easy cloner i basically just ditched that thing but i use the turbo cloner i've been using it for a long time you got to be good about cleaning them out um i use the permaclo collars um 
a thing you can do that will really sterilize it is just put like uh, maybe like, oh, I don't know, five milliliters of bleach in hot water and just run it with the collars and then just rinse it out really well. Then run it overnight with water and then rinse it out again. And then the permacollars, you can use them. You can uh, actually my wife does it for me, but she just puts them in like a like a turkey bag in the microwave for like a certain amount of time. It comes with instructions when you buy them. I'm, I'm sure you probably got them, too. And that's been a game changer for me. I don't get the slime at all. And literally my clone rate, I've, I've probably done that a thousand times and no BS, I've lost less than 10. So, I mean, I've had very good success with it. And actually a trick that I got from Spartan was I used to use distilled or reverse osmosis water in there. And I just used tap water and that helped cut back down the slime too. So because yeah, um, there's chlorine and stuff in your yeah. tap water mm -hmm. in most places yep. and that's going to cut down on some of that biofilm performing. So yes. if you use RO, um, I Dude grows, you always say, nature abhors a vacuum. And I think that's just a, a great way of putting it. It's like if you put RO, which is just pure, clean, like 0, 0.00 water into your cloner, then essentially the nasty stuff is going to get there just as quick as the good stuff if you're not putting good stuff there. And so it's it's easy for it to start filming up if you don't have a little bit of like a bleach type solution. And uh, what I wanted to make a distinction is like the oxyclone, like Spartan and I were talking about, it's kind of like a dwc or deep water culture style where there's like a pool essentially that your clone sits in a pool of water noah's style the turbo clone and, and aero cloner is more there's a pump in there with these little nozzles that spray up water which is slightly different um so that is something to consider i think that they're they're uh hydroponic aeroponic whatever that, one's aeroponic when you're spraying water at the roots that's aeroponic when they're sitting in oxygenated water that's hydroponic Yes. Um, yeah, I, my I sprays. Aeroponic. Aeroponics the way to go. The problem with aeroponics is that the little emitters can get clogged up, so you have to keep them. And it does get warm, so that is something. I think some people run chillers even for those during certain times of year. I want to say something about this cloning. We find so I don't normally clone either, but this is going to be the side challenge in the New Year's Grow Challenge this year. Is going to be to take a clone challenge. So we're going to have like a designated cutting day. I can't remember. It's like February first or close to February first. Everybody starts on January first. So by like the beginning of February, everybody's going to cut clones, and we're going to have like a prize for the smallest rooted clone. So whoever can take the smallest cutting and get roots, and for the largest rooted clone. Um, but just demonstrate a whole lot of different ways to to do clones. If you've never taken clones, what better way to come join the NYGC and cut clones with us? It's kind of like what what happens to the clone once it gets roots? That's entirely up to you because like the plants themselves and the New Year's grow challenge, they're going to go into flower shortly after that. But um, just to to cut a clone, get roots, do it together, and sort of have that experience. So I think it's gonna be. It's going to be fun for people that have their cool techniques to show them off, but really fun for people that have never done it before to kind of follow along. So it's all the fun. Shout that out. I, I love to hear it. And I, I hope that you participate, Doc, because I know it's it's hard being I will, a busy person. Absolutely. The, my cut a clone challenge. I'm going to try to go for the smallest rooted clone. So. That's a fun challenge. I've got a pretty small one right now. My I did the top right? of my Project V, my Vortex F2 from Spartan Grown. Um, yeah. At like five or six nodes, I, I cut probably two or three nodes off of it. So I had like a clone this big that fits perfectly inside a little shot glass. And it just got roots like yesterday. Uh, so it's about to get planted. It's, like, it's a tiny little plant, but I'm going to fucking go for it. Uh, There's a, a shout out. I hope you do it, Jack. Start yeah. with us. Grow with us. Take some clones with us. It's going to be lots of fun. 
Um, so yeah, well, it's New Year, so I'll be done with my book by then. I'll, I'll hold myself to that, and then I'll have some go. more time. Draws and Brandon Russ rejoined us. So Brandon, while you show off your garden to us, it looks beautiful, by the way. Uh, we're happy that you rejoined us, and I wanted to ask you, what is your preferred uh, way to clone? Do you use like uh, rock wool or rapid rooters or soil? Like, what what's your uh, preferred method? I use the little peat sponges, the rapid rooters. For sure, that makes it simple. And what are we looking at now? Oh, I got a bunch of different stuff in here. This is my my bed. I just had a bunch of just random different things in here. So pan down of... so they can see the the new growers out there, like a, a soil bed. Like this is what he's talking about. Instead of having a bunch of pots, uh, if you pan down to the soil bit level, it's all one big you know soil bed, uh, which you see more commonly in like uh, a lot of gardening actually. So this is a very effective concept as well. The shared roots. There's uh, just like anything, positives and negatives, but I think that Brandon is an example and, and there's many others out there who growing in, in this type of modified growing mix, which a lot of people refer to as soil, uh, although it technically might not be, um, but yeah. Not technically soil, but yeah. It's looking it does good. have a lot of stuff in here, but yeah, it's got a lot of uh, organic material decaying in here. We've got, you know, but I put a bunch of different varieties in here, so nothing is consistent, as you can plainly see. We have different plants that are different heights, and, you know, because I started them all off as uh, real small plants in here, and I just kind of let them do their thing. A few notes I want to touch on for a new grower. There, You see these white poles around the outside. That's a structural element to support what a lot of people, like Noah even said earlier, he called it a scrog or like a screen of green or a trellis. This is a trellis netting. It's used to support your plants, to spread them out. Like this side does not have it, you can see. And um, they're just not quite as filled into the space. So it helps to grow your space out a little bit more evenly. Uh, you get better use of your light. Some people don't like them. I personally have moved away from it and I just try to train the plant by bending it and moving it in different ways. But Brandon, if you could pan back down, one thing that uh, people might be looking at is like, oh, wow, there's a lot of stuff on top of that soil. Um, in soils, it's really good to have even uh, moisture content kind of throughout the soils. And that top layer all being covered up acts as a, a mulch. And it might look kind of uh, you know crazy to some people to have like a not bare top of their soil. But I personally think in an organic setting, this is probably one of the better ways to do it or, you know, any number of mulches. I use rice hulls. Uh, some people I've seen like even like stone mulches, but uh, wood chips, there's a whole bunch of different ways of going about doing it. But uh, Spartan uses like a straw or hay or even like uh, cannabis stems from past harvests. So there's lots of ways to keep that moisture content even in your soil. And you can see Brandon is sort of just bending these plants over. That's a low stress you. training technique. Oh yeah, like in uh, that's what I did because they were real small when I put them in here. So I kind of spread them out on the first trellis and then bent them in to each different little thing or whatever. I'll go through here later on in a couple of weeks, and I'll kind of go in here and prune things up a little bit. Uh, but my next run is all going to be the same variety here, so it'll be a little. And uh, it won't come. It'll all come from the same size plants so it'll be a little bit uh it'll be a little bit more managed you know what i mean yeah and for new listeners out there if you're in ohio and you're like getting into this and you're like these guys sound like they're speaking in you know some other language it's really difficult for me to follow all these different you know wording and, and verbiage i have an episode of my own podcast that i did a long time ago it's called greenstock talks it's episode zero where i went through a bunch of different terminology like LST, 
like low stress training. What is that? Uh, topping a plan. What is that? You know, and all the different terminology that you're hearing us use so commonly explaining it, PPFD, all the different words that we use in, in regards to lighting, growing and things like that to just little- to help make it more easy to understand as you, as you listen to this, it can be a little bit alphabet soupy at times with all the acronyms and things like that. But, um, Hopefully yeah, that'll fun. make it a little easier to understand some of the stuff. If it is sounding confusing to you right now, just don't worry. Um, it can be really simple once you get set up. And uh, yeah. I have, Brandon, two sorry, bed- you off. I have two beds in here, th- uh, some three by threes. I actually just had these all on the floor, but I put them in here because there's nothing else in this bed yet. This is waiting for a project. The stuff I showed you guys earlier in the show. And then these are just some pheno hunts. Some plants that I didn't top, I didn't do anything to. I'm just going to completely flower them out in my soil in this one-gallon pot. Same thing with this one. Same thing with that one over there. Uh, that one's a male, though, so I'll have to pull that one out of here. This is an Afghani bull rider. But it's pretty uh, cool setup. We've got, you know, my vacuum for cleanliness. I've got an AC that also uh, heats the room. I've got CO2 in here. Uh, but I need to get a little ring to hook it up and I don't really need to use it because if I go over here and look at everything, my PPM is like already at 1260 naturally from the beds off gassing. Wow. So yeah, you're chilling. That's good. Yeah. And then I have my light controller and my two. How far into the light cycle are you right now? Uh, I am, I I flipped on the first, but no, uh, more like, uh, are you, did the lights just come on an hour ago or is it? Oh, have they been no, no, over no. six hours? Seven. They came on at seven. Um, I'm in California, so I'm three hours ahead of you. No, two which... hours. Oh shit, I'm, Oklahoma's two. Hours ahead of you. So it would have come on at uh five o'clock your time. They okay, just came so on. They've only been ago. sucking up CO two for a couple hours, essentially. Or no, for twenty twenty five minutes. Twenty five minutes, yeah. But that I could come in here later on and it it'll it, it's gonna be the same. Okay, I was going to say, I was curious as how much of that they use throughout the light cycle. Yeah, I mean, especially if I water them, which I watered them yesterday, so the beds will release a lot of CO2. For those who don't know, who are listening, CO2 atmospheric levels are 400 naturally, and just by doubling it, uh, it depends on where you're at, but roughly 400. By doubling that to 800, there was a study by Chandra et al., I think it was uh, that group, they found max light level is normally like we'll put a number on it call it like a thousand for a spot on your canopy that you don't want your light to be much higher than that if you're atmospheric the 400 uh, co2 level but if you double it to 800 the plants can run as high as 1500 and still perform uh, at a pretty high level not to say that you want to have it that high all the time um, it is a pretty high number and everything else it would have to be perfect if you run at those numbers it's probably safer to run it like if you have you know 800 co2 to run 12 to 1300 light versus uh atmospheric it's probably safer to run like seven to eight hundred before you get everything dialed in if you're really dialed in you can crank it up to a thousand and your plants will probably do really well um but you really have to have everything from environment to nutrients and all that other stuff uh on point so i'm trying to think if as from a new grower's perspective like getting uh equipment and technology we talked about pots we talked a little bit about um genetics and things like that do you guys have any other suggestions for uh, new growers when you were starting out? What are some of the things that you got as far as uh, stuff that you feel like is a, a need to get to get started? 
I'd recommend people start with a ventilated grow. I mean, unless climate really demands that you do something like what Brandon is doing, which is a sealed room, right? With the air conditioner that's keeping the, the climate in his conditions. Um, I think it's going to be a lot easier. So an exhaust fan for your, your ventilated space, figure out how you're going to sort of suck that hot, humid air out of wherever it is that, that you're going to be growing. I think that, um, some basics towards climate management. This is one of the reasons that a tent is helpful. Um, if you're growing in a tent, you know, it gives you a place to exhaust the air from, at least, you know, you need to pull it out of the tent. Where it goes after that, it's still an open question, I suppose. Um, I want to actually jump in because we had a question earlier from Oki Grower that jumps oh, right yeah. to this. It says, cheap home grow, uh, new to growing in a tent. I have an exhaust fan, but no intake. So the sides are sucked in. Yep. Do I need an, another inline fan to blow air in, or is there a cheaper way to go about this problem? Yeah, so open the whatever ports you have low in the tent, right? The exhaust should be pulling air out of the top of the tent and open passageway for air to come into the tent low. Don't like seal the tent up entirely and just try to like, I don't know, the air is going to get sucked in through the zippers or whatever. Um, you actually want air to enter low. So bigger grow tents have portholes and you can put ducting into those lower portholes. Um, whether or not you put a booster fan on that, putting ducting on it allows you to put a light sort of filter over it. Um, and oftentimes you will want to put some sort of inflow ducting. Um, smaller tents often don't have low ports. They have these stupid little windows. They come off with like Velcro um, and you can take them off during veg, but you can't like leave them off during flower and during flowers when this is sort of more important anyways. So think about that. Think about potentially cutting a hole in your tent or somehow light sealing that area um, to be able to introduce fresh air low in the tent. I'll say um, there is a difference between like your typical inline fan that's like a four inch fan that will fit in like a four inch hole. And what Doc said is a booster fan, which is the solution I took. It's cheaper. It's less powerful. But a booster fan was enough to overcome the what is called negative pressure. I believe when you have too much power, I have a big four inch inline fan. Uh, and I'm actually going to shout out this company because they're inexpensive or, or cheap. And some people think cheap means cheap quality or poor quality, but Vivo Sun is the brand that I've been using for the past several years. The fan has not broken on me. It's one of the cheapest introductory brands and they just got tested third party by Migro, which is a lighting company, and they outperformed two of the most expensive tents as well. I use their tent uh, and they have 14% higher reflectivity than uh, AC Infinity and 4% higher than Gorilla Grow Tents. I, I will admit the construction quality is definitely lower. He measured like the poles and stuff, but it's not terrible. My zipper is still working. Original zipper from, you know, I think I got this tent in 2018. So as long as you don't abuse the zipper, um, and I personally, uh, it could be WD-40 or some sort of lubricant. I, I think that silicone lubricants are typically a little bit more effective than uh, something that's used to get water out. Um, I think but... one of the ways people abuse their zippers is putting excessive negative pressure on their tents that pulls at all of the teeth along those and air is trying to squeeze in through there at the same time. So yeah, that's, that's a great point. That does it. 
I within the first grow where I saw all that negative pressure. I don't even know if I waited for an entire cycle. I got that booster fan because again, it was inexpensive, available, and the Vivo Sun tents have the port at the bottom, even on a small tent. My tent's three by like one and a half. It's five square feet. It's a tiny little tent, five feet tall. Um, but I fill it all the way up, and you know I get good airflow through there. So it's nice because you know it's a uh, yeah it keeps you preventing molds and mildews, keeps your environment regulated, gets your. The nice thing is with, with an adjustable. Some of them, the new ones actually have. Um, AC Infinity and Vivo Sun, whoever. Uh, you can even get like ink birds for like 30 bucks to make like a dumb fan into a smart fan that senses your humidity and temperature. And you could set ranges to keep it within a certain range and it'll either dial its speed up or dial itself down. So not only does it save you electricity, but it gets your environment into an ideal uh, place. So that's something to consider. Uh, another thing is hygrometers and uh, thermometers. One thing that I learned early on, if you're going under HID with like a uh, I had CMH bulbs, ceramic metal halide, um, or HPS. If you put a digital thermometer underneath one of those lights, they might actually read a uh, way higher temperature than it might actually be in that room. I found like the red stick thermometer, like you would you know have on your wall, just a regular you could get wherever, whatever store. Those tended to be a little bit more accurate. But I also like the uh, laser temperature gun. I know some people say that they're not accurate or consistent. I've had great results with the ones that I have gotten. So. I, I tend to trust it for leaf surface temperatures. And that is also something that might be different than the ambient temperature of your room. So it's good to know um, the temperature of your plant might be a little bit different than the temperature of your room, depending on how things are set up, depending on what type of lighting you're using. The more traditional uh, style lighting, HID, tends to run a little bit hotter with ambient they have uh, in their spectrum. This is really getting to the weeds for a newer grower, but it's basically infrared light, like the same type of light that they use to heat food at a restaurant, like those red lights, those warming lamps. That's part of the spectrum that is used in the older style of lighting. So more of that heat gets directly put onto the plant. So you have to have more considerations for cooling. And uh, like Noah the Groa uses that type of light. It's called HPS, high pressure sodium, or an HID, high intensity discharge. And he has a good air conditioning unit that offsets the BTUs or British thermal units that are created by the amount of light and energy. And granted, every single thousand watts of energy creates, I think, 3,400 uh, BTUs. It needs to be offset by either, um, you know, by off-gassing it with uh, exhaust fan, like we were talking about, or by using air conditioning to you know, mitigate the uh, temperature that it creates. And uh, so I'm curious, what uh, do you guys have any preferred uh, a tent that has done well for you or any ones that you would avoid? I'll start with uh, Spartan. Yeah, like a tent, a grow tent. Using a, I bought a long, long time ago, but I'm using a Gorilla Grow Tent, the Lightline one, the cheaper version of the Gorilla Grow Tent. And the reason I bought it was, was because that one was like a foot shorter than the standard Gorilla Grow Tent. So not only was it cheaper, it was a foot shorter, which I needed because the standard was too tall for my space. So it kind of was a match made in heaven, but uh, it's worked very well for me. Uh, I haven't used it too much. It was my original bedroom until I could build out a bedroom. And then it sat in storage for a while. And then uh, it was put back up for a breeding chamber. And now it's like this test chamber for some lights I've got I'm working with. So it's had many roles and it's been very useful because of that. But I wouldn't say that I worked, uh, you know, I, I worked it too hard. That's fair to say. 
I will say there is um, something that I will say for new growers. Um, unfortunately, there is some infighting in, in any community and some people sort of like look down on or disparage like tent growers as if like it, that makes you, and although you are a new grower, like you're a newbie, that's fine. Some tent growers will start off their first grow and grow like the best stuff that they've ever smoked and like better than some stuff that people have been growing for like 10, 20 years that are fixed in their ways and, and doing a lot of stuff wrong. So Oh, wow. In the circles get... I run, man, people people grade up into a tent, like they they upgrade to a tent. You know what I mean? They'll start off like you did, like in a closet or something. I mean, getting a tent is sort of like the the next step. Yeah, well, and and they're affordable. Like I, the one I got, yeah. I think is like eighty bucks or something. I think that's right. relatively affordable, and and they're actually incredibly well versed for what they're they're so purpose built. They have completely reflective walls, so like. Instead of having to make a grow room that has reflective walls, you have this thing that contains your plants, already has reflective walls. The other nice thing is they're portable. You can break them down if you have to move, if your landlord comes by or something like that, and you have to like hide your plants or move your plants, put them into a U-Haul somewhere. That whole entire thing breaks down into a little box, and you could pack it up and move it somewhere else and, and reset it up. They also clean up really well. And the bottom tray, something that I didn't know for a while, I was like putting a drip trays under every single plant and then my one hydro store guy was like oh you know instead of doing that like because it was making the spacing a little bit difficult he's like the bottom tray of your tent is actually waterproof like a lot of them have a secondary tray and granted it will make you burn through it a little bit quicker especially if you're putting like nasty stuff into it i noticed i will say uh, over years i started to have some of the mylar in my tent from doing that started to uh, chip up but it isn't it's still waterproof it's just not like it doesn't look as pretty so um I'll say that if you want it to look ideal, have these little plastic drip trays under each plant to catch your water. But if you don't care so much and uh, the other thing is like I could just replace the tent. It's not <laughs> in one harvest. You will gain back that return on investment like the, the tent is such a. In, I, I got it. I got it back and say use that tray in your tent as your backup saucer, not as your only saucer. Like that's what happens when the other saucers overflow or don't work or get a hole or whatever water fills out. Like it scares me a little bit that that's your only line of defense. But I've grown in like a high rise condominium complex where I had several neighbors living in units below me that might really not appreciate, you know, a slow leak. That's a good point. And it would be, it would have been bad. And I was hand watering at the time and uh, now I'm in a sip uh, container so that it has a, a basin at the bottom. So it's sitting on top of that. And I haven't had any water on there for years at this point, but um, when I was in cocoa and doing it, or even when I was in soil and pots, I let that be the solution for maybe months or a year, however long. And uh, personally, I just, from an IPM perspective and it, for those who don't know, IPM integrated pest management. That's Matthew's our guy there. He's our pest expert. But um, from that perspective, I just find the cleaner things are, the less problems I tend to have. And it, it just makes me feel happier and it looks nicer when I go into a clean tent versus like, so at a certain point in your grow, your leaves will look like this, nice and green, healthy. But at some point, like they might get shaded out and they'll turn yellow and, and die. And some people just pluck them off and drop them on the floor. Or maybe they'll fall off and they'll just leave them on the floor. But picking them up can prevent like certain pests from essentially getting attracted to those um, leaves that are dropped all around. So being clean is not only uh, a good looking thing, it offers pest management perspective of being less uh, friendly for pests and pathogens to start forming in that, I think Matthew calls it detritus, uh, but essentially crap that's kind of scattered all throughout the room. Yeah, I'd agree with that for sure. It's also great for like fungi and funky and that kind of stuff. You know, you'll you'll uh, you'll 
if you're interested in like uh well you're gonna have a question jack uh, i was gonna because spartan is gonna be getting out of here in about five minutes um and I'm gonna take off too pretty soon here too doc kinda, is gonna be going as well but um five minutes as much as i can but I, yeah yeah you did tell me at the beginning that you were gonna probably head out about this time so i'm curious if you have any uh thing because this is like a big episode and maybe we'll even continue it on next week because there's a lot of stuff that i feel like we haven't gotten to get to uh and starting your own grow is a big ordeal so this is like maybe part one of as a new grower here, here's how to start but uh, any kind of final thoughts and wisdom or anything that you want didn't get to say earlier that you'd like to include on this one i i think one of the things that we didn't mention that's really important for new growers is to get a community get a group and here we're a community we get together every sunday um you know we have a great community at cocoa for cannabis there's other great communities out there but find a, a community that will help you along the way and be there to answer your questions and um celebrate your victories with you but be there to answer your questions is like a big one um because things will come up that will freak you out and that you won't know if they're hugely important or something to be ignored or how to sort of resolve one of the mess ups that you did or whatever so it's really nice to have kind of laid down how some people that are already aware of your growing that you chat about with growing so come back we'll see you next sunday come visit us at coco for cannabis um but you know or find whatever community you want i think that that's a huge key to success i want to say congrats to you doc because i believe that i saw a smart poker posted that coco for cannabis just passed i think fifty thousand community members over there I, I believe so. Yes. Um, big milestone. And now, now that you've said that it's, I can't remember if it's 40, but I think it is 50. Um, yeah. Big milestone. Really happy to, to sort of create a space where your growers can come together and share advice and grow together as we like to say, and looking forward again, New Year's grow challenge, drop seeds free, open to all growers. We're not trying to make money off of you. We're just trying to grow with you. Um, so Drop seeds on January 1st. We're doing the the cloning side challenge in February, but the nearest grow challenge is always a lot of fun. So start getting your, your grows lined up to be able to, to grow together with us. Lots of winners, lots of categories. It's it's more of a collaborative grow along than a yeah. competition growing against each other. So it's like a, a fun time for everybody. And I will say of that 50,000 people, um, whenever I've gone over there and checked out, there's even like a 24-hour chat, like live chat, people just hanging out. Every single time I've gone, and this is, I'd say, probably fairly unique to that community because even here, sometimes we have some uh, not-so-friendly people in our chats, although I love the, the criti critiques, whether they're constructive or not. Uh, over at Cocoa for Cannabis, for whatever reason, everybody's super positive. It's like all about grower love, positivity, like not bullying the new grower, being inclusive and friendly, even if you're not a cocoa grower, even if you grow in soil, Absolutely. even if you grow on something else, they're happy to help you, and it's a super friendly place. And I will say there's a lot of... Uh, I'll, I'll shout out Instagram. There's a lot of toxic bullshit where everybody's, I'm the best. Your way sucks. I'm going to fucking show you. This is the only way to do it. I'm the fucking masterist of the master. My grandpa grew for so many generations and his grandpa grew. And then I'm the fucking king wizard of all growing. So you're going to run into some of those people on Instagram and some other sites. Uh, as much as I love Twitter slash X um, and even like Facebook, or I, I don't love Facebook, but uh, there's good communities out there, but there's some shitty as people on a lot of them and it's very awesome to see such a pure really good uh, mannered community and, and really 
well-educated and informed people growing up. I want to reiterate that we are not just about growing in cocoa. So the the theme, the actual real theme of the NYGC is is growing media. So there's a peat soil group, there's a water group, there's a cocoa group, like whatever media you grow in, we're specifically trying to invite growers in in other forms of of media and other styles of growing. Because yeah, absolutely. It's not about beating or winning. It's about growing together. So with that, I will take my leave and and make my next appointment. Grower love, everyone. I'm glad I got to stick around for most of this show tonight. And uh, thanks to the rest of the panel. Thanks always, Jack, for hosting. Grower love to the community out there. Get your grows ready to drop seeds or cut clones on January 1st. And I will see you next week. Thanks again, as always, for joining us, Doc. We got you a little bit longer than we were expecting. So really appreciate that. And I hope you have a great rest of your evening. And we'll catch you next week. And I'll pass it next to Spartan Grown, who is going to be going over to Michigan Bros Grow Show. So if you like this kind of content, there's going to be two more hours of it on Michigan Bros Grow Show YouTube channel. Um, But yeah, Spartan Grown, do you have any final thoughts? You can go a little bit, I don't know, longer than typical because this is a, a episode we covered a lot of different stuff on. And if there's any pertinent wisdom that you'd like to sneak in there before you get running, we'd love to hear. Yeah, I'll. for one, I, I really like what Dr. Coco had to say. Um I was going to echo him in that, like, find a system and follow it. Don't take 30 systems and try to hack them together. Find one one person's philosophy. Either find find a person that can be a mentor to you or a community of other growers that you can kind of bounce ideas off of if you run into issues. Because um, if you if you try to mix match things together, then these the systems generally won't work well. It's, it's a recipe for disaster. So pick one system and try that system from beginning to end before you make any judgments on it. Um, and then I encourage you to try all different ways uh, once you do that and then find the one that you're the best with, the, you know, the one you get the best results with, the ones that work the best for the kind of per- grower you are. And that's, I think, the ticket. But uh, yeah, other than that, um, the best advice that I ever gotten as a grower coming up when I was asking people was um, you just have to have patience, just be patient. And, and, and there's so many different examples in the growing process where where that can be applied, where, you know, you see something and, and we tend to overreact a lot. And that's a lot of the problems with the plants is, is us overreacting or overloving the plants. So be patient and err on the side of doing nothing over, <laughs> over doing, doing something. Um, get second opinions before you just do things. Um, and you'll probably be way better off because these plants have uh, survived on their own, surprisingly enough, right? Way before we even came around. So they do a pretty good job of trying to correct their their own issues. So try not to overlove them too much. Other than that, yeah, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna sign out of here so I get ready to go to the Michigan Bros Grow Show. Um, I love each and every one of you guys. That goes to out to chat too. These same faces I see every single weekend uh, puts a big smile on my face. Uh, girl love everybody and keep on growing much love smart and growing great advice thank you so much for being here always a pleasure having him and uh everybody on the panel i appreciate his time and uh all of yours listening and, and the other panelists who are here with me as well uh this has been a fun one for sure i'm looking forward to continuing kind of a part two for next week maybe picking up uh continuing on some more advice for new growers how to get started and i'm curious uh we're not going to go into final shout outs and thoughts yet, but if there's anything that we haven't discussed this evening 
that you would have tried to impart to a new grower that you didn't get to share yet. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to pass it first to Noah the grower, and maybe that can be uh, a leading point for our next discussion. Um, a good tip for me that I got when I first started, I would just echo what everybody was saying, find a, somebody that's going to be able to help you along the way. But another tip would be to try and find some good genetics, um, something stable, something good. Um, that, that, that helped me hit the ground running and, uh, just keep trying. Like it's not, it's not when you're new, it's not easy. And, um, sometimes you can hit the ground running. I got real lucky and I did, but, um, everybody that works hard at it can be a good grower. It's not really that hard. If you put in the work, you just got to do what you got to do when you need to do it and stay, uh, you know, vigilant and, uh, good things will come, you know, and you can always find someone that can help you. And uh, anybody can hit me a direct message anytime. I'll help anybody the way, any way I can. It's great advice. I saw a post, uh, it was like a delivery person who was just like, admiring a, a volunteer plant that i think there was a rose bush nearby maybe either like a seed or a root like grew underneath and it was growing out of a crack and there was like she's like i've been admiring this since it was just one plant and they're like i think it's so cool that you just keep it there and it was like a little rose growing out of a crack and i've seen uh somebody i think it was stony rockefeller shout out to him had a volunteer growing like by a behind the house or a garage or something in a little crack just like that as a cannabis plant and it looked beautiful it was like full flower like maybe a week or two from harvest and a gorgeous plant and i believe it was a true natural volunteer just like spread it up and he didn't take care of it all just let nature do its thing and it goes to show that it looks better than you know some people who try their best to give 100 percent of their effort to the plant and maybe over love it and become like a quote more on gardener they think that they're going to put more onto it and make it better and uh it's, it rhymes with more on for a reason <laughs> because it, it can unfortunately lead to negative results and uh, bad consequences and, you know, making it not perform as it would just if you left it alone. So learning, like Matthew said, to not overwater and then the struggle of not underwatering, finding that balance, getting that dialed in and also having good genetics, like uh, Noah had mentioned, starting with something that, you know, it might not turn out perfect your first time. And a lot of people will say that it's easy and a lot of people will make it seem like it's rocket science, but it's probably somewhere in between. Um the plant will survive out in nature and they call it weed and it might be a weed, but that's not going to be like your tastiest, most flavorful, most potent stuff. So eventually you'll be able to dial it in to get better and better over time. So it doesn't have to be perfect your first time out, but some people start off out of the gate crushing it. So it's not like uh, being a new grower excludes you from growing some really killer stuff. If you get a good system and you know are able to follow people's advice and get some decent equipment, then you too can grow your own some probably better than some of the stuff that you've ever smoked if you've never grown before, because oftentimes by the time it gets to you, it's been sitting out in you know, sunlight, heat, things like that and getting degraded over time. It gets uh, worse when it's exposed to sunlight and heat and oxygen, it's oxygenated and the heat uh, literally burns off some of the more flavorful elements like terpenes and flavonoids and uh, esters and things like that. They can go off at as low as 68 degrees. Uh, some more of them at mid 70s but a lot of the time people let their stuff if they leave it in their car for example it'll get up to 90 or 100 degrees plus so that can actually make it quantitatively worse so um with all that said brandon if you uh were helping a new grower get started out is there any advice that you didn't get to mention tonight that you would like them to know as like there's lots of new growers that are going to be starting in ohio within the next 30 days i believe is uh the window but 
even if it's not in Ohio, anywhere else, new growers starting all the time. I met some California growers starting their first grow uh, last night. So, uh, I would say use Bokashi Earthworks human fertilizers. It's super, super easy. You don't have the pH. It makes it so simple. You can get good quality results. No, uh, you know what? I think that um, just doing it and doing trying to find what works best for you, no, and not get frustrated if it doesn't work out the first time, because, um, you know, you'll make mistakes on the uh, along the line when it comes to the cultivation stuff. But uh, just a little with a little bit of practice, you know, you can become really good. Good advice. And uh, I guess I'll pass it last to Matthew before we get into our final thoughts and shout outs to uh, let you kind of throw in if there's any advice that we didn't get to give out to a new grower that you would like to uh, start them off on the right foot with. Yeah, I would have liked to prepare for this subject. It's a pretty big subject if we're going to emphasize it. So let's definitely talk more about IPM stuff in the next episode. But it's something I've talked about before. If you're new, then you would not have heard this before, which is Step zero for IPM is learn what your potential pests can be, not just for cannabis in general, but specifically your area might be more or less um, affected by certain pests, more, more likely to encounter some over others. And like Dr. Coco said, uh, you know, having a community is a great way to get that information. And as the agricultural extension agencies and things come about and become more active in the cannabis space, uh, like we've seen in research, we're going to see a lot more of that, which is very cool, very cool. So learn the pests, learn what they look like, and also have options already. Have a preventative strategy in place, or at least planned if it's your first time, and uh, make sure you have those resources before you need them. That's super important, and for some cases where time is of the essence, it can be the difference between having your first grow go well or grow very poorly. And if you have no growing experience at all, um, and this is your first time, I think that's all the more important for you. So you're not hectically going around trying to fix things. Uh, many people I've worked with have had to do that at a home grow and commercial scale. So those are probably my best uh, tidbits to impart here. We could talk about more detail next time. Great stuff. And I will say Ohio, uh, at least Northern Ohio, where I was raised, um, for a lot of the year gets heavy snow and very cold weather which as many out there i imagine are going to be indoor growers is a slight benefit from the ipm perspective uh, and it also makes cultivating i think a little bit easier because that coldness uh as long as you keep your pro tip if you're growing in a basement in ohio get little plant risers to keep your plants off the floor or if they're on like cold concrete you don't want them to have cold feet so in the winter time lift those plants up um, but that cold will also sort of offset your heat uh depending on what type of lighting and how much you're using to grow but if you get properly lit even with led there's going to be some heat and so winter time is going to be a little bit easier probably than your summer grows uh, for most growers and i had other thoughts oh ohio being i was from the northern part but for anyone who's not aware um international listeners and people who aren't from ohio southern ohio actually has much warmer weather so if you're down like athens by like ou um they get you know, maybe no snow or, or little snow or just a lot less harsh uh, winter. So like Matthew was describing, know your local area. Uh, 
hopefully you can now that it's legal start to form little cannabis groups uh, columbus cannabis club or whatever athens uh cleveland there's already cleveland like cannabis college i can't speak to or vouch to any of the quality i do follow them just from afar and i I've, they seem to be doing decent but i wouldn't pay any astronomical prices to them or anybody if, if people are charging big bucks to get education most of it should be free and available online uh brandon rust and others have shown there's plenty of resources available if you are willing to look uh and he, he shares lots of stuff and so do many others uh matthew and uh noah as well but there's lots of great stuff and with that said i want to pass it to brandon to let the people know where can uh, they find you online all the social medias and stuff as well instagram uh bokashi earthworks we also have a facebook linkedin all that stuff but uh, yeah, mainly Instagram, Instagram and in YouTube, you can find all kinds of educational videos. Uh, but then we also have the website. So we're starting to build out our, our blog posts and educational content on the Bokashi Earthworks website. That's bokashieearthworks.net. You can also pick up awesome products like pure fulvic acid, humic acid fertilizers and microbes and amendments and all kinds of goodies great stuff and next we've got noah the grower where can the people find you uh you can find me on uh instagram at noah the grower and uh most weeks here and uh yeah to any new growers out there like like brandon said just keep trying keep doing it it's uh it'll get easier with time and uh You'll be able to figure it out. It's, it can look confusing at first, maybe, but uh, you'll be able to get it going on. But uh, yeah, if, if anyone wants to get a hold of me, I'm Noah the Grow with T's on Instagram. You can find me there. And I'll see you next week. Always great to have you, Noah. And last and certainly not least of our panelists this evening is Matthew Gates. Yeah, I really enjoyed this topic. And I think that if we maybe even do like a multi week, um, uh, beginners growing advice series i think they'd be really good at least for a couple and if you're curious to learn more about this kind of thing hopefully i've made a good impression you can check me out at zenthanol.com you can check me out on my youtube channel zenthanol you can check me out on instagram my personal account is at sync angel which you can see on the screen and aside from all of that i do hope that you guys find a good community if you're new to growing, find some more ways to grow, some more techniques and strategies, and learn your pests for sure. The amount of people that I've worked with where that is um, not put at the forefront has been kind of disastrous and surprisingly high. So as a home grower, that's something that you won't have to deal with, especially if you're getting your stuff from a dispensary that might be having problems. And maybe you'll have less of them yourself. So take a look, see what you can do. And um, I hope that benefits you. Great stuff. And uh, Ohio is definitely a great community. They've got lots of good people. And uh, I can't agree more on that. Try to set up and establish, you know, with your local people. It is weird sort of like coming out of the closet of cannabis. You know, a lot of people are still going to feel stigma about it. And everybody obviously is going to have the different comfort levels of how much they share and who they share with uh, about their levels of use or growing and things like that. Uh, one thing that we didn't mention that I should have brought up at the top is uh, there's a thing called a carbon filter now. So most people think of cannabis as a highly aromatic plant. It smells uh, very strong. And if you're growing it, especially, you know, lots of plants and flower are going to start to smell. And there's something called a carbon filter that filters the air 
uh, and you use that to basically cover up the fact that you're growing because even in a legal state, you may not want to be a target or may not want everybody, your neighbors and, and everybody to know that you are growing. So that is a sort of personal security thing, but it also is a uh, grow related. It has some benefits like uh, it can help make the air just more clean, uh, cutting down on the potential for things like molds and mildews. Uh, it's not going to prevent 100% of them, but I think it's uh, better than not having one. And it is a great benefit, mm -hmm. I think, for anybody who's trying to have a little bit more stealth in their grow. As I do know, growing up in Ohio, there are a lot of people that will have that stigma and kind of look down on cannabis and, and be that way, so to speak. But a lot of them, their justification was that it was illegal. So now that it's illegal, hopefully we'll see hearts and minds continue to change. A lot of people really benefit from it as a medicine. And I think a lot of Ohioans will also find the therapeutic element of growing the plant. Um, so like I said, make sure to uh, hit me up if you're interested. I always answer my DMs on Instagram. I don't really post there too much. Jack Greenstock is my account on Instagram. I have Jack underscore Greenstock as my backup account on Instagram. I don't get notifications for that one. So if you message me on my backup on Instagram, I might not reply there quickly. So try to use the main account. Uh, Jack underscore Greenstock is my name on X or it used to be known as Twitter. And those are the two main places to uh, reach out to or contact me. If you don't have social media and you'd like to email me, jackgreenstock47 at gmail.com. I also have my website, 50strains, S-T-R-A-I-N-S.com, like 50 Strains of Green, the title of my book, uh, which is available. It's right now on a Black Friday deal uh, discount. fifty or Yeah, it's 50% off for those in the United States. So Ohio would be included in that for sure. And uh, I also have seeds available for anybody who'd like to buy them, Ohio or otherwise, uh, in the U.S., 50% off until Black Friday. So shout out to everybody who's gotten those and uh, supported in that way. It uh, is much appreciated. And we uh, don't have any other panelists this evening. It is the six o'clock hour. We do this show for two hours every Sunday. So if you enjoyed it this week, we're going to be doing it again next Sunday. And we're going to pick up kind of where we left off and continue to help uh, new growers get their grow started. And oftentimes, if you look at our past episodes, we do Q&A. So we'll live take uh, questions and answer uh, for the entire show, not just like a little bit here and there like we did tonight's show. We kind of weaved a few in there. But we also cover scientific articles, if you're more into that side of things, and specific topics from time to time uh, about growing. So we really appreciate any new listeners that are out there. We look forward to getting you growing. And uh, it's exciting. Whenever Ohio or any other state legalizes, we want to continue to encourage people to grow their own and empower themselves and overgrow the planet. Much love. Peace and love, everybody. Jack Greenstock, signing out. Have a good one.